Okay, that's better. It's my fault. I hadn't turned my microphone on, which is always helpful. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning on this glorious Sunday morning at the beginning of September. As, uh, as Ian mentioned earlier on, there's a lot going on at this time of year, isn't there? Kids starting school for the very first time and uh, children changing school, young people off to university, just new starts all over the place and it's an exciting time. Uh, we're actually, I'm actually speaking the last message in our little series of parables we've been looking over the summer at some of the stories Jesus tells and uh, how these small stories can have important principles for our lives today. And uh, so it's the last one today and uh, really I'm, I want to just tap into a question which I think some of us ask from time to time which is, goes something like this, Lord, what on earth are you doing? Or where's God in all this? Maybe you found yourself watching the news and you thought, where's God in all this? Or you found yourself approaching some situations and you thought, Lord, what, what are you doing? Where, where can I see you at work? Maybe you've heard some stories of God's incredible work around the world and you've looked at your own life and you've then gone, well, where are you, Lord? And, and Jesus addresses some of these questions and uh, actually turns some perceptions upside down. It's two very simple parables, and I want to look at those. They're quite familiar ones to some. Um, just see if you recognize these. Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated each part of the dough. Now these are nice little familiar stories for us. And yet at the time, I want to see today how shocking these would have been. And how perhaps that sense of shock can help us today. Uh, really challenging words that Jesus is saying and strange they come in Luke's gospel I haven't got it all up on the screen but if you have a bible open or an app on your phone with the bible on which is always a good idea when someone's preaching because you can check out how what they're saying fits into the wider setting and you can see when we're making it up which we don't um, but you can see if we were um, and that's always a good thing to be able to do to check out what does the word of God say so have your bible open um, and uh, Luke 13 the little bit before this in Luke's gospel is around a story of Jesus healing a woman. And she's a woman who's been uh, unwell or crippled for many years. She's been unable to stand up straight for 18 years, bent double, the scripture says, bent right over. And uh, in the synagogue, Jesus has healed her, set her free of a, a spiritual oppression, and uh, he's touched her, and instantly she's standing up straight. Uh, and the religious leaders at the time are challenging Jesus and saying, well, you've healed a woman, okay, but it's on the Sabbath and you really shouldn't have done that on God's special day. God's holy day once a week, you shouldn't have healed this woman today and you should have just left her and done it another day because today is a marked out day. And they're challenging Jesus around this work that he's doing. Jesus then replies and says, well, even if you had an ox, wouldn't you untie it on the Sabbath or a donkey? Wouldn't you untie that on the Sabbath and lead it to give it water? This woman, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, so she's one of the Jewish people, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? Uh, and then 
He has this, uh, the scripture has this, it says, this shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. It's interesting that Luke has packaged these parables together with that story uh, in a way that Mark and Matthew haven't done. These parables in Mark and Matthew follow on from other parables also about similar things, but Luke's kind of arranged things slightly differently, and he's put them after this story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and he's done it on purpose. He's showing something profound about the kingdom of God that I think is life-changing for us and it's important for us to grasp for the whole church and for our perspective on what God is doing in the world today. What is God doing? Jesus is going to tell us in these passages. Jesus is going to manage to speak to two groups of people, one of whom are offended and one of whom are rejoicing. And answer this question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Firstly, God's work seems small. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in the garden. Again, Luke's gospel is slightly different. So Luke says a, a mustard seed that a man planted or a tiny mustard seed that a man planted. Mark and Matthew reference this and say that it's the smallest of all the seeds. And, and that's caused some people some consternation because you can actually find seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. And they go, well, what happens? How does, does Jesus not know? Uh, and of course, he does know that it's not the smallest of all seeds. Is he not telling something that's true? Of course, he's telling something that's true. But what he's doing is picking up on a Jewish teaching proverb. And there's a mustard seed is used proverbially by the Jewish teachers to refer to something very, very small. And so when Jesus is referencing the mustard seed, he's choosing it on purpose to reference something that's tiny and minuscule. And that's why it talks about it as kind of the smallest, because it's connected with this Jewish saying, this proverb that the teachers use. And he's using that to illustrate this sense that God's work seems tiny sometimes. Sometimes it seems insignificant. And I think this is profoundly disturbing to those on both sides. To those who are triumphantly celebrating that the kingdom of God has come, a woman's been healed, right now let's see the whole world taken over. And to those on the other side who are representing perhaps something quite different. This is uh, representing the religious authorities and the rules and the temple and the structure and the format. To think that the kingdom of heaven comes as something tiny is quite troubling and disturbing. As, As we read through the Old Testament, there's a constant battle going on as God who's portrayed as the Lord of all in the beginning he's the creator of all things heaven and earth there seems to be a constant struggle going on as people try not to trust God as the Jewish people even God's chosen nation try to trust other people other nations the they're trusting the Egyptians at some point for rescue they're trusting other nations at various points they're trusting in themselves they're trusting in foreign gods at times and they're worshiping idols and there's this constant battle for will you really worship God and follow him or will you try and go your own way and that plays out through the whole of the Old Testament this battle for who's really big and powerful and strong and will you really trust God with everything in the New Testament we see Jesus kind of speaking these words surrounded by the culture that's around and we can't go back there today in quite the same way but he's speaking in the synagogue and there would have been markers of the Roman Empire all over the land at the time this mighty empire that built roads and built buildings and set up 
uh, political structures and infrastructure and, and gave so much to the world. This mighty Roman conquest that had, had gone across the known world at the time. And, and it's all about, when you're a Roman in the Roman Empire, it's all about power and authority and control. Uh, it's, there's talk of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that comes because uh, there's peace across the lands, but it's, it's at a cost. The people are subjugated. There's some freedom, but there's, there's, there's a cost because the might of Rome has been flexed and, and put in place. And so people live under the Roman Empire. And as Jesus is talking, there's, there's markers of the Roman rule all around him as he speaks. He's speaking just after this incident in the synagogue. And if you want evidence of rule and authority and power, you can look to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It would have been Herod's temple at the time, the one he had organized to be built, a mighty, impressive building. Huge structures and the Jewish people with their traditions and rituals and rules and formula and pattern and a, some with a hunger after God and, and others less so, but structure and format and rules and a sense of how things should be done. Representing the power that God had. If we keep the rules, it'll be okay. This kind of relationship of rule and ritual connected with God somehow. And there was an expectation that a king would be coming. A Messiah. A Jewish ruler to reign and rule and restore the land of Israel to the Jewish people. To kick out the Romans. And get rid of the one power, one source of power with another God's power that he was going to come and reign and rule. And Jesus is speaking this parable into that context with the Old Testament background and the Roman authorities around and the Jewish expectation of power and authority and mixed with the tradition and everything else. And even today, I think we're still looking to be impressed. We're still waiting for God to impress us quite often. Uh, if you have ever studied um, I've had the misfortune to read a book on, entitled Systematic Theology. They're quite heavy tomes, but they always start with God's, what they describe as God's incommunicable attributes. That's the stuff that we, God can't tell us about because he's eternal and he's almighty and he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and, and everlasting. And different kind of words that are even more complicated than that that are put at the front of the book to demonstrate how other God is. How big God is, how mighty God is. And we, we love talking about these concepts, or theologians love talking about these concepts of the otherness of God, the vastness of God, trying to understand it in some way. Even we today are constantly wanting, I think, to be impressed by God. If, I said, if, if, if someone said, well, how, how can I know that God's real? We'd want to dredge up a really impressive story, wouldn't we? to show them if someone said well what what is God like in your life we want to polish the best bits and say well this is the bit that God's done and it's quite impressive really look or, or conversely perhaps we struggle and we look into our own lives and go well I haven't got many stories maybe I'll tell them someone else's because that's more impressive than mine and I'll tell them about a healing I saw or, or something I've heard, read on the internet or something I've seen on one of the Christian TV channels and I'll, I'll, I'll proclaim that and show that because that's impressive. And we're constantly battling with this thought that we, we want God's kingdom to be big. 
and impressive. And yet Jesus starts and says, do you know what? I want to illustrate what God's kingdom's really like. It, it's like a man planting a mustard seed. And it's singularly unimpressive when planted. And, and he's actually picking up on something that runs through the whole of Scripture where God starts the whole of creation with Adam and Eve. Two people. And says, oh, go fill the earth. When there's a flood, he starts again with Noah and his family and says, oh, go fill the earth. When Abraham's chosen... He starts with one man and, and says, I'm going to put, dis your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the ground. It's going to be the grains of sand. It's going to be vast. And yet it starts small. When God chooses Israel, Israel is small and comparatively unimpressive. There are moments when the nation is saved by one person, when Samson or Deborah or Esther or Moses or David or whoever it might be is saving the nation of Israel, but they're starting small as just one of them. You'll have noticed a pattern in the Old Testament, and this is probably for another day, but where God chooses the youngest in a family or the younger brother several times, counterculturally, when normally in that culture you choose the eldest and they'd get two-thirds of the inheritance rights and the other would get, others would get less. God sovereignly chooses the other way around sometimes. Uh, and we get this sense that the youngest is chosen instead of the oldest. And it seems all upside down. It seems the wrong way round. And there's this persistent theme of smallness. There are moments when we see bigness and greatness in the Bible. There's moments when people strive for excellence, like when the Tower of Babel's built. And the group of people get together and they say, we can accomplish anything. What we're going to do is build a really big tower and reach to the heavens. And God comes and destroys it all. Because they're building something big and impressive and something that speaks of how great they are. And it's the wrong way around because God's kingdom seems small quite often. There's a passage in Haggai. Haggai is one of the Old Testament prophets. And several times, the, or a couple of times, the Old Testament temple was destroyed. The Jewish temple was destroyed. And this is one of those moments where the people have been out of the land and the temple's been destroyed and they've been brought back into their own land again to, and able to rebuild the temple. And the problem is that some of those who remember the last temple knew how impressive it was and they're looking at the foundations of the new one and they're, they're scratching their heads and they're beginning to cry, some of them, and they're saying, this is, this is terrible. This new temple is small. It's, it, it's not the same. It's not as splendid as the last one. And sort of halfway down, this passage, God's speaking and, and says, does anyone here remember this house, this temple in its former splendor? How, how does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all, but the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you, people still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. I think that last part is a word to us today. Be strong, all the people. And now get to work, for I am with you. I think that's a word for us today. It says the Lord of heaven's armies. Isn't that great? It's another way of phrasing the Lord Almighty, that uh, great sense of God's power and glory. My spirit remains among you. There's this sense here that we forget sometimes that God is at work in smallness. 
And each time it's still shocking. When when do we see the greatest evidence of God's work with Jesus, through Jesus? Was it is it when he's surrounded by the crowds? Or is it the next sermon that he preaches when they all go? And he's left just with the twelve. Is it when the twelve desert him and he's left with less than he started with? When is it that we see God's glory coming? Is it on the cross? Is it the empty tomb? I guess there's, there's many moments through Jesus' life and the stories that display God's glory and God's kingdom, but I think we sometimes look in the wrong places. God uses the small things. The boy with his lunch that feeds 5,000 people. The woman with a tiny offering in a temple. At the times when we have small resources and small offerings and small moments, the prayer that you pray to say, Jesus, I need a new start. Forgive me. That tiny phrase, that tiny moment where you say, I need you in my life. Will you be Lord? And everything changes. Let me say this before I move on. If God's work to you seems small, God is at work. He's still at work. He's still building his kingdom and he's still at work. It's how he starts. Today, if you're looking at your own life and you're not very impressed, but you can see a tiny seed, that's enough because God's at work and his kingdom starts small. Today, I think we're often looking for things that God isn't wanting us to look for. He's looking for us to be encouraged that he is at work and he's building his kingdom. Secondly, God's work seems hidden. It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Now, actually, it's referring here to to yeast within an old piece of bread. Well, not bread, but dough. And so it's the leaven. And yeast is obviously what makes the bread rise, the dough dough rise. There's chemical reactions going on which allow for sort of this aeration of the dough so it makes a nice loaf of bread rather than a cracker and uh, unleavened bread, which is a bit firmer. And so there's this, but what's actually happening is that the woman would have here would have kept in this story, keeps a bit of the old dough, still with this kind of powerful chemical reaction available to it. Uh, and it's kept to one side and, and uh, it's used to put into the next batch. And that leaven is kind of going through the whole of the dough. And so there's bread to be made. A lot of bread, actually, as we'll get to see in a minute. But it's an unusual story again. It's shocking because this time it's not small alone, though it is small. But Jesus is picking leaven or yeast, which is throughout the Old Testament a bad thing. The, the Jews are always, Jewish people are always being told to get rid of the, the leaven from their homes or the yeast from their homes at certain times of the year for certain festivals. And it's, it's traditionally used even by Jesus to speak about negative things. He tells the disciples to keep away from the yeast of the Pharisees. And here he is saying, let me tell you about the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom of heaven's like a woman making bread and it's like the yeast in the dough. And you can imagine even the disciples scratching their heads and go, but we thought yeast was bad. It's not bad in itself, but it's used as an illustration of bad stuff. And he's picking once again this unusual thing to show that the work of God often goes hidden or unobserved. In the midst of a culture in which 
the symbols of religious practice were external as well as internal. As you read through the Old Testament, you have plenty of external markers that the Jewish people need to follow about how to dress, how to have their hair, if they're a man particularly, what to wear, how to, and Orthodox Jews today practice their interpretation of the Old Testament rules in how to dress and how to practice their faith with external symbols of that faith. Jesus is saying in the middle of this, God's work actually seems quite hidden at times. You can't see the yeast in the dough. You just see the bread at the end. It's this hidden thing that's at work when you can't see it. And the kingdom of heaven's a bit like that. It's interesting that he's just been challenged on the woman being healed in the synagogue. And he's picking up and says, well, the kingdom of God is like a tiny seed. And it's like this woman with yeast running through the dough. This is what the kingdom of heaven's like. It's like a woman being healed in the temple or in the synagogue. It's like the one-off things that God does again and again and again. And God often works in a hidden way. There are plenty of times, and we haven't got time to look at all the stories now, but plenty of times in the Old Testament and through the New where God is at work in hiddenness. The times when someone's in prison or the times when someone's, um, the, the nation is even, is out of the land and they're in exile. The time when Elijah is, has just come off the top of a mountain having had a, a battle with some prophets from a false god and he, he's sitting there and, and, and later on he appears, God appears to him and he says, oh, I'm the only one left. I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one who's been faithful to you, Lord. And God quietly and gently has to say, well, actually, Elijah, I've, I've got 7,000 others that I've kept. And he didn't know. And Elijah's got this sort of slightly depressive but slightly persecution complex thing going on as he stood up for God and he feels like he's the only one and God's actually got 7,000 others. See, God's at work even when Elijah can't see it, even when a prophet of God can't see it. So God can be at work when you and I can't see it either. God's at work in unusual places. We see it through Jesus' ministry where He's touching lepers and raising the dead and working with tax collectors. God's at work in unusual places. He's at work in unusual people. Jesus chose semi-literate disciples largely and yet was at work powerfully through them. Simple people. And then we get to, I think I've got the scripture on the screen. Wonderful passage about the early church. I love the early church and the stories that we read, but... This is what we read Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish to shame those who think those who, they were wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things that are despised by the world, things counted as nothing and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So we see in this church in Corinth that there were a few wise people. There were a few powerful people and a few wealthy people. There's a whole lot of other people who weren't particularly wise or powerful or wealthy. And God chose them all, even the ones who were considered most foolish by the world, to show the world his glorious kingdom. And God does this consistently. He puts his kingdom in things and people, actually, that you wouldn't choose. But he does. 
he hides, it's as if he hides his kingdom in unusual places and unusual people. Sometimes God's kingdom is hidden in our own experience and we look at our lives and we say, God, where are you? My encouragement today is to say God is at work. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who made bread and she made it. It's like the yeast in that dough that's going through the bread and she's, it's, it's having its effect. Why? Because the kingdom of God is growing. Jesus says that that seed grows and becomes a tree and the birds make nests in its branches. And, the, and he says of the woman that she made only a little yeast in three measures of flour and it permeated each part of the dough. The main point is that God's kingdom, though it starts small, is growing. Though it's hidden, is spreading. But Jesus' kingdom is coming. Uh, years ago, it seemed as though there was a massive focus on Jesus coming back again. There was an, uh, and maybe we've lost this, I'm not sure, but there was an expectation going back decades that he was co- he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And it's as, it was as if we don't need to do anything now. We can let the planet go to pot. We can do whatever we want because Jesus is coming back and he's going to rescue us. It's almost as if this life doesn't matter. Our hope is when he comes back. Today, there's a counter movement that seems to be going on, which is to say everything that Jesus is going to bring, we can have now. That actually it's all about bringing that to here and have it right now. It's as if there's an expectation of that Jesus coming back he's going to come back when it's all finished and we've got it all ready for him and yet i think the bible actually lands somewhere in the middle of those two streams of thought it doesn't say we've got to wait and we've got no hope now and we've got to just cling on desperately for jesus to come back nor does it say we're building a kingdom we're we're establishing a kingdom and jesus is going to come back and go oh yeah well done guys that's it there's nothing left for me to do it actually lands in the middle and gives us great hope It talks about how the king is still coming and he's coming to reign and rule. And when Jesus comes, that will be the day when there's no other kings and there's no other kingdoms. Until then, this is how we know it lands like this, there are still going to be other kingdoms and other kings. People are going to still worship other gods and Jesus is going to come back one day and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone will see that he is the Lord of all, that his kingdom has arrived in fullness. And until then, we get the privilege of participating with him in God growing his kingdom now and establishing his kingdom now. Jesus came to say, my kingdom's here, it's begun. It's begun, it's here, it's now, it's happening. You don't have to wait a thousand or two thousand years, it's happening now. You can be part of my kingdom coming now. And we have the privilege of partnering with God in seeing God's kingdom come now and we can see God's kingdom come one day, fully when Jesus comes back. God is at work uh, and this story tells us that you can't stop it. It, it, it. When that mustard seed is planted, it keeps on growing. The, the leaven, the yeast in the bread keeps on growing and growing and growing. And from small beginnings, you get mighty growth. Now, I still wish Jesus had chosen a different illustration. Because I looked up a little, a little bit about trees. He, he could have chosen, it wouldn't have made much cultural relevance, but he could have chosen a Californian redwood. You now the people in Jerusalem or in the, around the synagogue wouldn't have understood what he was talking about, but he could have done because it's got seeds the size of tomato seeds. 
and grows still a hundred meters high. It's huge. But he chose the mustard plant tree. Now, I wanted to show pictures of the mustard tree, but I discovered that there's debate as to what type of mustard tree it was. Some say it must have been a particular one, which is, which is like a, it's described as a toothbrush tree. As well, you can take the branches off and they're used for toothbrushes, apparently. Um, but, but it's more impressive, and it's, 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 it's one that obviously the birds can nest in the branches. And others say, no, it's, it, it's this other one, which is more like a, a kind of sown in a vegetable garden. And yes, you could get some birds nesting in, but it's much smaller and much less impressive. Uh, one has, the more impressive one, has slightly bigger seeds. It doesn't quite fit that bit of the parable, but does fit the big bit. Uh, and one has quite small seeds, so it does fit that bit of the parable, but it's not a very impressive picture to show. So I haven't shown you anything. Because I don't think the point is this, that Jesus is saying it's going to be the most big, the most impressive, the most glorious tree, actually. Because that kind of countermands his first point. He's just saying it's going to grow. And it's going to keep on growing. And it's going to keep on growing. And it doesn't matter whether you think it's impressive or not. It's going to serve its purpose. Because birds are going to come and make nests in its branches as provision for others to come. As, as God's word says, from the north, the south, the east, the west, to come and be part of the kingdom of God. Even if the picture he's chosen is the straggly mustard bush. And the kingdom of God is actually a bit straggly. And his work in our lives looks a bit straggly to us at times. His work is powerful and it's started and we can trust it and it's continuing and others will be blessed. The yeast, three measures of flour. Turns out that's quite a lot of flour. There's enough bread to feed 100 people from the story Jesus is using. And I think that's significant, that God is at work and there's enough to bless other people. Let me wrap this up. God is committed to his work. When it's small or unseen, he will complete it. And if you've looked in your life and you've looked around you and you've thought, what's God doing? I want to encourage you today to look again at what God is really doing. To look for the seed and to see how it's grown. Because in every one of our lives, God is at work and he has grown what he started in our lives. And please don't start comparing. Don't go to the Californian Redwood Christians that you might see around you and go, well, my life doesn't match theirs. Just celebrate the fact that the kingdom of God has started and it's growing. And don't despise it. In that passage in Haggai, the encouragement is not to despise the day of small things. Don't despise the small thing that God has done. Celebrate it and trust him to continue it. Stop. Let's stop trying to be impressed at what God is doing. I, I suspect that when Jesus does return or when we go to meet him face to face, we will be very, very surprised that the things we considered impressive here on earth are suddenly less than impressive in his glory. That the things we built up and people we put on platforms and the people we celebrated, suddenly I think there's going to be a whole load of different people raised up and celebrated. A whole load of different stories told as we hear the voice of the master picking people out and saying, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Well done, well done, well done, well done. And there's a whole load of people that you might look at and go, them? Really them? But I was looking for these impressive book, you know, celebrate, globally celebrated people. They, they may well get a reward. But I think God is looking for something different. He's looking for those whose lives are fertile grounds where he can plant a seed that looks unimpressive, but it grows and others are blessed and his work is growing and others are being blessed through those people who are saying, Lord, would you use me? I don't need to be impressive. I don't need to be, have my name in lights. I don't need to have fame and renown, but I just want to serve you. I just want to see your kingdom come in my life. My encouragement for us today is to join in with what God is doing. Don't watch what God does in others. Join in. As we're going as a church to two different locations and there's, there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on, that's not impressive in itself. It's just what's happening. It's, it's fact. It's what's going on. What will be impressive in God's eyes will be as you and I, as many others, Pray and serve and give and go and pour our lives out in service of a king, of kings. That's what I want to be doing. That's what I want my life to count for is to, to say, Lord, I've given everything to your cause. I'd love to be able to say I held nothing back. It's poured out. Finally, this. Each day we have the opportunity to plant seed. And as we're starting next Sunday, we're planting seed here and in a new location for some of us. We're planting seed day after day after day. We're mixing our lives along with the lives of others around us. And we're trusting that as we do so, God is establishing his kingdom and it's growing. And many will be blessed. There will be seasons and times when it's not glamorous. We're praying for seasons and times where of healings and miracles. We're praying for salvation. We're believing and trusting God that we'll see baptisms, that we'll see lives changed, that we'll see people set free. But in amongst all that, there'll be bins to empty and there'll be floors to clean and there'll be muck to sort out and there'll be paint to pick off your elbows and there'll be stuff to there'll be people to sit and talk to that you perhaps don't we don't want to talk to that day because maybe we're busy doing other things there'll be people to pray for where maybe we're tired there'll be people to in our, all our lives when you're going to work and and you just you just want to do your job and go home but God actually has more for you than that and, and there'll be moments where we have to press in and hold on and say, Lord, I'm still trusting you that you're building your kingdom. Even when I'm tired, even when it's not glamorous, even when faithfulness rather than faith seems the order of the day. Lord, I'm trusting that you're building your kingdom. So, as you look inside your life and I look inside mine, how does it seem to you? Does it seem like there's a mighty tree? If so, I'm excited by that because there's birds coming to land in the tree and others will be blessed. Does it seem like there's a, 
a, a loaf, there's loaves of bread fit to feed a hundred, in which case, give it out. Give it away and celebrate what God has done. If you're looking and the bread is still being proved and, and, and the tree is more like a shrub, be encouraged, God's at work. If that, sh- that seed just has a little shoot, be encouraged. God is building his kingdom. It's coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these stories where you show us that your kingdom is coming. And we can have great confidence in that, but you also show us that sometimes it seems small and sometimes it seems hidden, maybe even unimpressive. And Lord, would you forgive us if we've been chasing after being impressed? If at times we've sought to be impressive or to be impressed and we've told stories of what seems to be great to us when actually maybe you're doing something different. Lord, we pray that you give us your mindset and your insight. For we would love to see the work of God as you see it. We'd love to see your kingdom as you see it and to see people as you see them, to see ourselves as you see us. Most importantly, we'd love to see you as we should. Lord, we pray for fresh faith. We pray for fresh vision. We pray for fresh passion as we look again at your kingdom and the the possibility that you are wanting to use us as part of what you're doing in this world. Lord, we say here we are. We're yours. We may not feel impressive. We may not feel numerous, but we're yours. And we thank you that as you plant us, your kingdom will grow. Amen.